When I say the word discipleship, what comes to mind? Are you breaking out in a cold sweat because of your past experience with discipleship relationships? Someday I will tell you the story of how my small group leader shamed me over my social media posts. So if you're feeling a bit skeptical about the idea of discipleship, I get it. And I'm especially grateful that you are listening today. Author and theologian Becky Castle Miller joins me to talk about the one crucial component of healthy discipleship. Keep listening. This is going to be a great episode. And make sure you keep listening to the end of the podcast. I have some fun news about the second anniversary of the podcast. I'm Amy Fritz, and you're listening to the Untangled Faith Podcast, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith, while untangling it from all that is not good or true. This is the place for you. Not long ago, I was reading Dr. Scott McKnight's Substack, and he mentioned a colleague of his, Becky Castle Miller. It reminded me that I had met her at the Restore Conference last summer and knew I wanted to have her on the podcast. Becky is a wife, a mom, and a student. She was the director of discipleship at an international church for eight years in the Netherlands. She is currently working on her PhD on emotions and discipleship in Luke at Wheaton College under Dr. Esau McCulley. She's also a master at sharing theology through social media. I am very happy to introduce Becky to you today. So I was reading one of Scott's sub substacks, Scott McKnight, and he was mentioning you and talking about discipleship. And I'm like, let's talk about healthy discipleship. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about, because I talk a lot about hard things in the church. I talk about a lot of the darkness <laughs> and I don't want to just be about being against something. I yes. want us to move towards being people that are for something. And I mm-hmm. really think that l- looking at being healthy people as we are formed into people that are more and more like Jesus is what the gospel is all about, like yes. this whole journey. So I would love to hear why you are, what draws you to this study? What has made you passionate about discipleship and doing it well in our churches. And we can go wherever you want to go with this. Wow. Um, What has drawn me to discipleship? I don't know if I have an answer to that question specifically. Mm -hmm. They say that all scholarship is autobiographical. Yeah. To some extent, right? So I can tell you why I'm studying emotions in the New Testament Mm -hmm. um, based on my upbringing in conservative evangelicalism, where I thought I couldn't trust my feelings and I needed to shut down my feelings. And realizing in reading the Gospels as an adult, Jesus is actually very emotional. And why can't we be also? Uh, So that's what led me into emotions and discipleship connected to emotions specifically. But discipleship in general, I don't know that I can point to anything other than it's just this burning passion inside of me. Um, you know, it's, it's the great commission. It's what Jesus called us to do. And so I think there's just an element of, because I want to be a faithful and fruitful follower of Jesus that involves making disciples of other people. That's, that's what we're called to do. And, and I think that the Holy spirit has given me that passion, um, just as a matter of course of, of the Christian life. That's what, what we should be doing. Um, and I, I also have the gift of pastoring and I love, pastoral discipleship, Mm -hmm. pastoring people 
to care for them and support them as they grow in their spiritual journeys. Um, Tell me what pastoral discipleship, because if somebody thinks of discipleship, they might be thinking of something different than what you are saying here, especially when you put the qualifier on there, pastoral discipleship. Yeah. Um, Well, discipleship is simply making disciples. It's the work and action of telling the story of Jesus, helping people understand how their story intersects with Jesus' story, making Jesus a part of their story, and guiding them in that process of learning the ins and outs of daily life with Jesus. And every Christian can be a disciple maker. Right. Um, I've written discipleship curricula. Um, I've taught leaders. I've taught small group leaders how to disciple people. I've taught discipleship leaders. I've taught discipleship mentors. Um, I've mentored and discipled people myself directly. Anyone can can make disciples. Mm-hmm. And I think that the various gifts the Spirit gives different believers will influence the flavor of how right. we go about making disciples. You know, those who are gifted evangelists will do well at telling the story of Jesus to people who aren't familiar with it. Whereas for some people, they're not as gifted at that and it can even make them uncomfortable. Right. But they are very gifted at uh, serving. And so one way that they make disciples is through acts of service for other people mm-hmm. serving the church and, and the community. Um, and so I think for me, because I, I couple the gift of pastoring with the the calling of disciple making, I'm always thinking like a pastor. Um, what does it mean to carry a shepherding responsibility for a particular people in a particular mm. place and time? Um, I'm not currently serving in a pastoral role. I'm focused on my academics right now. Yeah. Um, but it's, um, I still see providing soul care for people as part of, of what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, like right now I have a couple of clients that I'm doing pastoral care for, um, from a, a, a IFS, a, a internal family systems therapy, mm-hmm. like using that skill set to do trauma informed pastoral care for people. Um, so I'm still pastoring people, even though I'm not leading a church at the moment. Right. Um, so that kind of, Gentle care, guidance, oversight in, in a non-authoritarian sense, but like mm-hmm. having the care for someone's soul in your hands, uh, yeah. being used by God to nurture their spiritual life, um, to speak God's words to them, uh, and to gently guide them as a shepherd does is how I approach discipleship. That sounds really beautiful. And I love that you you really highlight there that if God has a call on your life, he's going to find a way for you to respond to that, whether or not you are in a full-time position that pays mm-hmm. you in a way that, that affirms that calling. <laughs> well, right. right now you also have, you have several roles in your life that you are right. And that is these, you know, I was, I think I just mentioned to, I think it was in my interview that I did with, with Robin Wooten 
um, that just came out this week. We're talking about Peter Scazzaro and his emotionally mm-hmm. healthy spirituality and how he talks about how God guides us by helping us have these like boundaries in our lives that are, you know, partly formed by the roles that he's given us to play mm-hmm. mother, father, mm-hmm. wife, husband, mm-hmm. friend, and and that will also influence the time and the resources we have to give in right. other places too. So Yeah, and I'm having to learn that there are seasons for that and I can't do everything all at the same time. Um, when we moved back to the U.S. from the Netherlands, um, our pastors asked me to preach, to be on the preaching rotation. I loved doing that. Um but I realized when I started my PhD program, I I don't have the time and energy to devote to writing sermons right now. Yeah. Uh, so I had to step back from preaching, even though I love it, uh, to write research papers instead. Um, and you know, I'm not I'm not currently training church leaders in the way that I was when I was serving in my church, where I was mentoring all of our small group leaders regularly and and on the preaching rotation. Um, but God's given me different ways. You know, there are incoming PhD students that I've been able to guide in their process yeah. like others have done for me. And um, I've had opportunities to share my work on podcasts and things, which is it's still a way of making disciples in in doing kind of public scholarship. Um, even like I would consider TikTok to be public scholarship. Oh, and yes. the way that I'm able to share the research that I'm doing, what I'm learning, what God has taught me about my emotional life, I'm able to give that to other people um, in a one and a half minute Instagram reel or TikTok, even though I don't have time to write 30 minute sermons right now. Yeah. I love that. Um, So you were in the Netherlands. What, Mm -hmm. how does the culture look different when you're thinking about discipleship in the Netherlands as opposed to, you know, in Chicago? Well, Western Europe as a whole is probably at least 10 years more post-Christian than the U.S. is. I think some people would say it's like even 20 years further okay. um, in kind of post-Christian modernity, post-modern, like post-modern, post-postmodernism, right? Like I think we're <laughs> yes. even past postmodern right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and Europe is further down that secularization road than the U.S. is. So Christianity isn't as prominent in public life as it still is in the U.S., um, my context was at an international church. So it wasn't just cross-cultural with Dutch people, but we had people from a hundred different nations in our church. And that's a completely different type of ministry. Um, missionaries who go cross-cultural where it's, they're coming from their heart culture and they're going to one other culture is a very different skill set than someone who's doing multicultural ministry where you're trying to navigate mm. 10, 20, 40, a hundred different cultures yeah. Um, it, th- those I had to learn. Like I thought I was going to the Netherlands to do missions, and I realized no. Like multicultural ministry is not the same as cross cultural to to a monoculture. Um, mm. So that that's one issue. It's not you're not just dealing with Western Europe. You're dealing with um, southern parts of Africa and eastern parts of Africa, and you're dealing with South America and Central America, and you're dealing with Eastern Europe uh, and the Mediterranean and and then also some people from the U.S. and Canada. So it's a mix of cultures. And so there's no way to describe. <laughs> there is no one culture. Yeah. It's like not about, it wasn't, your experience wasn't just, this is what it's like in the Netherlands. 
It was like, yeah. this is what it was like with all of these people from all these different parts of right. ended up in this church. Yes. And I think that's the first thing you have to learn is there is no our culture. So you kind mm-hmm. of make a culture as a church, just like you make a culture in a multi-ethnic family, you have to take elements of your own cultures and bring them together. And then in a church context, you're trying to cultivate the culture of the kingdom of God. And so you've got people coming from disparate uh, cultures, languages, experiences, Christian traditions, and bringing them together and trying to figure out what is the culture of the kingdom of God in this present moment that we Mm -hmm. can live out in unity in spite of our vast differences. Um, And so there there is no one answer uh, on yeah. any on any controversial issue because you're going to get 20 different opinions of whether it's right. should Christians drink or should Christians celebrate carnival or, you know, um, what do we think about women in ministry leadership? You're just going to get so many different opinions. Yeah, that's fascinating to me because as, as discipleship is about helping people see Jesus grow in their faith. But when you are working with all these different backgrounds, you can't um, you can't default to um, like ma- mature Christian life looking like it looks in the Midwest in the United States. Mm-hmm. You can't enforce <laughs> cultural uh, uh, hegemony. Uh, or, or that's more, probably too strong of a word. Um, <laughs> You cultural consistency, like you can't. It's so interesting. Judge. You really have to keep going back to the scripture to see, mm-hmm. like, what does it what what looks like Jesus, not what does it look like to be an American Christian? Right. It's not like, well, they're wearing a baseball cap in church, so we know that they don't understand the unwritten rules yet. Meaning they're not part of the in group. Like you, you can't. You shouldn't do any of that anyway. But a lot of American Christians do. Um, yeah. There's no way of telling by the way someone looks or acts where they're at spiritually or if they fit into the church culture in the way that monocultural American churches sometimes experience. Mm -hmm. So this is a gift that was given to you, although probably uncomfortable and a little awkward sometimes to try to find your way. Very, very uncomfortable, very difficult, very challenging. I had to confront my own Americanness and my own sense that my way of being a Christian was the right way. Can you think of a specific example? What that would look um, like. Service opportunities, because that was one of the first ones I had to deal with. I was used to the American culture. I grew up in the church. My dad's a pastor. I went to a Christian college. So I had this very business-like approach to church. You run a church like you run a business. You can learn business principles to make your church better and bigger. Everyone should be- Have everybody read Good to Great and yes. Jim Kyle, all the, all the business stuff. Yeah. Yes. Um have everyone um, volunteer a lot, give their time, give all of their extra energy to running the church. You can run a church on volunteer labor. Everyone will go to church every week. Mm -hmm. I had to throw all of that out uh, because I would invite people to do stuff when I first got there, go to small group or, um, you know, volunteer to, we we met in a youth hostel. So set up and take down every week, Um, lead a small group. Uh, teach Sunday school, help with the children's ministry, serve coffee. And people, especially the Western Europeans, were very resistant to that. 
And so my American mindset said they're not serious Christians because they don't want to volunteer their time at church. Wow. Or they're not serious Christians because they think attending once or twice a month is consistent attendance. What changed your mind? Um, talking to people and hearing their perspective and realizing that's just not how people do things here. Dutch yeah. people in particular don't run at the same pace of life that Americans do. They work 35 to 38 hours a week or less. They have six weeks of vacation. They take their downtime very seriously. You can get a parent schedule at work where you are off work when your kids are off school. So you can just pick them up. Like It's just so much more accommodating to family yeah. life and to rest and vacation. And so they were not about to fill up three evenings a week doing church stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so I realized I was wrong. My expectation of what makes a good Christian was American. It wasn't biblical. Oh, that's a, that's a good word. That could go on a t-shirt. <laughs> so my, so many of my listeners have come from really hard, painful church situations. Um, and when they hear discipleship, they may think of like an Acts 29 heavy shepherding thing mm -hmm. and think, mm -hmm. oh boy. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I think I do want to be like Jesus. Uh, but it, what if somebody wants to be in a discipleship relationship with me and tell me how, how can I engage in that? I, I guess there's two questions. Mm. One is what does it look like to do it in a healthy way? That isn't a, Hey, Becky, I saw what you posted on social media and I think you need to come in and have a sit down with me about it. And like, talk to me about what that looks like in yeah. a way that tells people that this, this is the healthy, this is the way to go. This is not the way to go. Right. Or maybe talk about the bad and the good. Yeah. Well, one thing I had to break off of myself, both as a parishioner and as a pastor was the linking of authoritarianism with discipleship. Ooh, talk about that. Because I grew up in uh, Christian fundamentalist, like homeschooling, like the most conservative of the conservative cultures. And then when I was in my early twenties, I got involved with like the quiverful movement. So I know what religious authoritarianism looks like. I've experienced mm -hmm. it. I've suffered under it. Um, but even as I started to break out of those particular subcultures, I still thought I had some right as a Christian leader to control other people's lives. Mm -hmm. So even though I had suffered from it, I still thought it was right. But maybe now I'm the person with the power. Mm -hmm. I've never put it in those. Like, I think I, I need to know. I know what I need to talk to my therapist about in my next therapy session. Because that's <laughs> there's still a lot to unlink there. Yeah. Um, you're not free from authoritarianism just because you step into the power role instead of the power under role. Mm -hmm. um, and taking power over is actually incredibly unhealthy for us. But I think. I thought that shepherding, like the shepherding movement, you know, um, the right to tell people what to do was appropriate for a while. Um, it was opening myself up to questioning everything and rethinking everything and studying spiritual abuse and um, other forms of abuse that helped me 
both heal from the impact on me of being under spiritual abuse um, and then also learn non-abusive ways of leading people. Hmm. What does that look like? Um, No one has a right to be the Holy Spirit for anyone else. Oh, man. Um, We have to trust the Spirit's work in someone's life. It's not our job to convict people. Um, It is the Spirit's job and the Spirit's job alone. And the Spirit's power to transform. I cannot transform another human being. That Mm -hmm. is only the power of the Holy Spirit that can do that. Um, But I can teach them to the extent that they come to me willing to learn. Mm-hmm. I can't even force someone to learn. Um, I can I can teach. I I learned through really painful experiences that um, I only want to teach people who want to be taught. Mm-hmm. Putting yourself out there as as a teacher, as a leader, as a disciple maker for people who are resistant to change and resistant to your leadership is is very painful. Um. And causes can cause really deep wounds. You just being rejected like that, it's painful and it doesn't do anyone any good. Right. So I'm only going to try to do discipleship with someone who says, I want to learn. Yeah. Teach me. Um, and then then there's consent. Like they need to give their consent for you to oh, yeah. teach. And it needs to be humble service. There are times when if someone invites it, you you can bring correction. But I think so many of us have only experienced that done in destructive, harming ways that even saying bring correction, like I'm even uncomfortable saying that because I know yeah. that's, that's going to be a trigger for a lot of your listeners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It'd be a trigger if someone said that to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also experienced people I've given permission to, to speak into my life, to bring correction to me and it was very good for me. I went, uh, my seminary degree was with Scott McKnight. Mm-hmm. And as my professor and mentor and friend, Scott had my permission and my consent to correct me. And so there were times when I was still in Europe, he, like early on in my seminary journey, he messaged me and was like, hey, I saw that thing you posted on Facebook, which is the example you gave earlier. Like I yeah. had that happening. But it wasn't like a, you need to come into the church office and we need to talk about it. It was a, mm-hmm. hey, Um, you're a little bit out of touch with the American political environment right now. And you need to understand that when you move back to the States and are pastoring people, you can't say X, Y, and Z because here's how it's going to cause harm. So Mm. I would encourage you pastorally to reconsider how you talk about this issue. How did that feel to hear that from him? Um, it felt good, right? Like it's, it's, there's always the discomfort of being corrected but because it was coming from someone I was submitted to as a teacher that I trusted, right? it felt like, ooh, I see that I have not done something as well as I could. And because I share the, the goal of, of serving people, loving people, I'm going to take this correction. I'm going to apply it. Um, he sees something it, that you don't, that you didn't yeah. see. And like you said, you had willingly like consented to like, this is the sort of you know, mentoring relationship. Discipleship and mentoring looks very similar. Yeah. Um, is it just the Christian way? <laughs> Although we're, we're it, you're forming, you're wanting to be formed to be more like Jesus, not just mentoring somebody in a mm-hmm. skill. Um, but 
I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that relationship you already had with Scott gave him the, the sort of that authority Mm -hmm. for lack of a better word to be able to say or permission to say, Hey, you know, you knew he had you, he had your best interest in, in mind. Yes. He wasn't just looking around waiting for something to tell you that you're doing wrong. Yes. And we have the kind of relationship where he also affirms me, you know, like this paper was really good. And here's why you did an excellent job on that guest lecture. And here's what was good about it. So Mm -hmm. it was, it's positive modeling, teaching, and then teach me how to do something, giving me a chance to do it, reflecting on it with me afterwards about what I did well and what I can do better. So there's, it really, it's a disciple. I would consider him someone who has discipled and continues to disciple me, Mm -hmm. um, shaping not only my academic life, but my life with Jesus. And he's someone I look at and say, yes, God is truly a follower of Jesus. I see that reflected in every area of his life. Um, He lives out Jesus' love and I want to be more like him because he's like Jesus. so he he had permission to do things like that, like that kind of correction. And there's other things, you know, like on a study trip that we took in seminary um, where I was frustrated about something and brought it up publicly. And he came back to me later. He was like, hey, here's what's actually going on with that situation. And here's how you need to address that differently next time. Mm. Um, those are the kind of things I want to learn from someone who's going to Disciple me in in the same way that now I've put myself under Isama Kali. He's my doctoral advisor, and I meet with him every week. And he shapes my reading and my writing and my thinking, both as a Christian and as a as a scholar. I invite that. Mm-hmm. Like he has permission to correct me, but also like Esau and Scott are both examples of men who are good. Scott would say Tove, like they're yeah. they're Tove. Yeah. They're good. They're safe. I trust them. If if there was someone in my life who mistreated me or tried to hold authority over me and then tried to disciple me, it would be a recipe for spiritual abuse. So yeah. disciple making has to be in a relationship of mutual trust and respect with someone who is willingly submitting and willingly consenting to that. And the disciple maker always holds in mind they don't have the final say. They can inform, mm-hmm. but it is up to someone in the Holy Spirit what they choose to do with that information. If somebody is feeling consistently shamed by somebody, what would you say to that? What, what would you think about that? Shame is just not a useful tool. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not a useful tool for growth. <laughs> it's a useful tool if you want to tear <laughs> someone down. Yeah, it's, it's useful- effective in some ways. <laughs> it's depending a useful on what you want to do for an abuser, but it's yeah. not a useful tool for a healthy relationship. Um, the voices of shame in our formation become our own internal critics. And then we live with that voice in our head until we have someone who can help us heal from that and untangle it. Um, so if, if you are constantly feeling shamed either in your own head by that critic part of yourself or by those around you, uh, that's an indicator that something's really wrong. Yeah. Now for a quick break. I'm not sure what your impression is of counseling. Maybe it sounds scary. I used to have this idea that counselors would be able to read my mind and all the things I didn't want anyone to know about would suddenly be revealed. 
And then I started going to a counselor and experienced what it was really like. Guess what? I got to decide what I was ready to talk about with my counselor. If you've been considering getting started with counseling, Faithful Counseling makes it so easy to get started. You can start the process without even picking up the phone to talk to someone. The Untangled Faith Podcast is brought to you by my listeners who support me on Patreon. It is also brought to you by Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is a Christian counseling service with more than 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 states with access by video or phone sessions or chat or text. There are therapists with expertise in trauma, depression, family conflicts, and more. You can ask for a new counselor at any time and financial aid is available for those who qualify. Untangled Faith podcast listeners get 10% off their first month from our sponsor, Faithful Counseling. Go to faithfulcounseling.com slash untangled. Fill out a questionnaire and you'll be matched with a counselor. That's faithfulcounseling.com slash untangled. If you were to be able to come into a, a, a faith community that's brand new to you and they said, you get to help disciple the disciple some, some of the discipleship directors that mm-hmm. are over mm-hmm. men and women ministry in in this faith community in a church what would you want to help them know as they are growing into the the environment that they are leading in that's a really fun question i would love the opportunity to do that someday yes um and I, I miss sit down doing with that. the women's minister and the men's minister yeah. and say, here, this is what's happening in culture. This yeah. is what I see. But particularly, I would say in the US. Okay. Like what that that culture. Well, the first thing I would say is please drop your men's ministry and your women's ministry. Um, oh, tell me about that. <laughs> because discipleship is not gendered. Mm-hmm. Um, there doesn't need to be separate women's discipleship and men's discipleship. Um, especially for women, there are times when I think it's, it's right and appropriate and good to have, uh, environments for women to be in where they feel safe. And sometimes that does mean not having men present, Yeah, uh, but that's like a separate issue. Um, last year before the restore conference, I hosted a dinner at my house for a number of the women survivors and there were not any men there. And it was it was a safe environment for women. And, and they all talked about how powerful and, and safe that yeah. was for them. So there, there's a space for that, right? Um, but in general, I think to have a discipleship ministry, it should be multi-gendered, multi-ethnic, multi-generational. Um, because men and women have things to learn from each other. They need to learn to be brothers and sisters in Christ. Like Paul with all of his colleagues in his letters, men and women co-laboring. Um so, uh, yeah, that's the reason I would like, that's let's, where let's, start. Stop, okay. let's stop gendering discipleship. Like, let's all be disciples together mm-hmm. as long as we can do it safely, um, where especially women are not feeling threatened by that. Yeah. Um, then I would ask all of the leaders to be in an intentional healing relationship, guiding relationship themselves, whether that is with a therapist or a spiritual director um, or a wise mentor. But I'd really like someone, a life coach, like someone who is trained to help them find their wounds and heal them so they're not leading out of their wounds, Um, find the the things they need to work on and grow on and the, the character defects that they need to build up in their lives, the places they're not 
exemplifying the fruit of the spirit, someone Mm -hmm. who has the authority to speak to them and say, the way you handled that situation with the person you're discipling was unhealthy. Here's why and here's how you can do it better. So like that kind of get healthy first and make sure someone's caring for you as you care for others is really important. And that's a component that gets missed a lot, I think. And I hearing you also say an ongoing thing. Yes. Not just that, oh, I did that before. I'm good. Yes. (laughs) Every pastor needs a pastor. Every therapist needs a therapist. Every spiritual Mm -hmm. director needs a spiritual director. If you are making Mm -hmm. disciples, someone needs to be discipling you as well. Um, And then the third thing I would say is Question your culture and your curriculum. Mm. Um, Are you making people fit the mold of white suburban Christianity, if that's where your church is, or, you know, progressive urban Christianity, if that's what your culture is? Um, Are you making them look like you or are you making them look like Jesus? Oh, Um, that's a good question. Is your curriculum reinforcing? American Christian stereotypes. Um, we need more discipleship curriculum written from multi-ethnic perspectives. It, it was impossible for me to find discipleship curriculum at my international church. That is why I had to write it myself. Wow. Most of what was out there was done by American publishers or even British publishers, and it just did not work. If your discipleship advice doesn't work for someone from Nigeria, it's probably too American. Yeah. Uh, and it's probably too middle class white American because that dominates Christian publishing. Um, yeah. Listen to people of color, listen to women, listen to marginalized people, get input from disabled people. There's mm-hmm. so much ableism in discipleship curriculum. I even noticed things like, you know, take a walk outside and go pray. Okay, well, what does that do for someone who's bedbound or in a wheelchair? Yeah. Like, just catching the ableism in our in discipleship curriculum is important. So those are the three things I would start with is um, stop segregating by gender. We're all followers of Jesus. We need to be brothers and sisters. Um, get yourself healthy and stay healthy. Like have someone caring for you. And then um, make sure you're not making carbon copies of yourself, but that you're making people look like Jesus, even if they don't end up looking like you. Like let them come to their own convictions. You mentioned um, internal family systems earlier. Mm-hmm. How has learning about that helped you in discipleship relationships? I mean, it's it's the foremost tool that I use now, now that All I right, let's get it. into this. <laughs> um, uh, so internal family systems is a therapeutic methodology that is very good for trauma healing. Um, it's good for addiction recovery. It's good for eating disorders. Um, it's good for healing generational wounds. Um, it's It's a very widely applicable therapeutic methodology. Um, it was created by Richard Schwartz. There are a lot of great videos of Dick doing IFS sessions on YouTube. He's written a number of books, including No Bad Parts, which is a good place to start. The idea is that we, our minds are, have multiplicity. Um, and that can sound weird, but it just means that anytime you say to yourself, well, a part of me wants to eat chocolate ice cream and part of me wants to eat vanilla ice cream. Yeah. We use parts language for ourselves, And so IFS just gives a more formal framework for dealing with our parts, those polarizations or those issues where we're at conflict within ourselves. And then it also gives tools for finding wounded parts of ourselves that need to heal. Um, and it, it, there's a brain science, like the, the way that it works with your brain chemistry, 
and trauma healing, your somatic healing, it's, it's, um, it's scientifically based yeah. and gives you a framework to have those conversations with yourself. So when I meet with people now, um, it is with their permission, I will almost always use an IFS framework um, and say, you know, well, it sounds like there's a part of you that feels like everyone needs to look and act like you to be a follower of Jesus. Where do you feel that in your body when you have that? Um, yeah. Okay. Like let's, let's, um, let's look at that part of yourself. What is that part of you afraid of? Um, where's that fear coming from? Um, and then w- what wounds in your past might've given rise to this kind of managing, protecting part of yourself. Yeah. And then there's a the whole process for healing and relieving that. It's an incredible tool um, for people who want to learn IFS from a Christian perspective, I always recommend Allison Cook. Okay. She's got a wonderful My therapist book. uses it and it's just okay. been so, so helpful. And I think the first time somebody asks you in those questions, like, where where are you feeling that right now? It's kind of a like, what do you mean? Like, it's just a thought. I don't know. Where is it in my body? <laughs> oh, and now I'm like, I'm kind of feeling all like, you know, like I want to hide. I want to like pull up the weighted blanket over me now. like. Okay, well, now I'm feeling tense here, mm-hmm. feeling in my throat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have been having I I brought my dad in to do some therapy, both of us together, um, to learn how to communicate with each other. And he's in his 70s and he wow. said yes. And it was so powerful for us and so powerful for him um to be able to talk about things that, you know, that just d- was not done, right? And and giving permission to say, acknowledging that there are things that happened to you in the past that we're not saying that we're blaming parents, that we're blaming other people, or we're not taking responsibility. We're just saying this actually was a reality that happened and impacts us today. Mm-hmm. Um, my my therapist said once, like, there is a part of us, you know, when there are times that we have been healed that says, if I talk about this now, is somebody going to show up today to hear that in a way that nobody was able to show up before. Mm. And that I think about that so much. And I think that's just such a powerful thing. Yeah. I would think if people, people that are in ministry learning about that would be such a helpful tool. Mm-hmm. And you said it's science-based. This is not yeah. like a made up idea. This is, this is a real thing. And like, we're all, con- all of us, the whole thing's connected. Yeah, even though I, we, it's the part space thing, like right. you said. I'm really interested in the neuroscience. I'm using neuroscientific theories of emotion for my dissertation. So I'm curious about how all this works in the brain. Um, and thankfully, my therapist is really interested in doing psychoeducation. So, you know, I can ask, okay, so where in my brain is that happening? Okay, well, that's in your anterior cingulate. And the parts are going to be reacting out of your midbrain and they react faster than your prefrontal cortex can start engaging that and you can make good decisions. So we talk about like all the brain science of, of you know, the cascade of, of chemical reaction that happens when you have a trauma response. So yeah, if, if you want the science behind it, it is there. Um, and if you want the results, I've seen incredible results in myself and in clients. It's so fascinating. Are you trained as a spiritual director? I'm not. It's something I might okay. like to do in the future. Um, <laughs> After among, you finish. Among other things, <laughs> we'll see. Um, one thing I like about IFS is that 
uh, Dick Schwartz is very open to multiple helping professions doing it. He doesn't think it should be limited to just therapists, but he encourages spiritual directors and pastors and chaplains to to get trained because it is a useful tool. Even if you're not a full-blown therapist, it's still something you can learn. Yeah. I would say trauma, probably somebody else has said this and I'm, I am like repeating them. It's like a huge, one of the biggest mission fields um, in our communities, people mm-hmm. that have experienced deep trauma. And as they are coming into our faith communities, what should we know as people that really want to help people see Jesus and become more mm-hmm. like Jesus? What other skills or um, tips would you give to those well, in those sort of situations? I just- I just did a doctoral level research paper on trauma accessible churches. <laughs> oh, come on then. <laughs> I, I could have got a whole hour just talking about that. Yes, um, I should have started there. Uh, I have heard that as well. Like, tra- I think that might've been something Phil Monroe or someone said at the Restore Conference last year, or okay. Wayne Mullen, one of them. Trauma is a huge mission field. The, the field of traumatized people who need healing and are looking yeah. for it. Um, probably Dr. Langberg said it first. Yeah. We're all I'm sure she did. She said everything first and <laughs> we're all just repeating her. Yes. Um, gosh, Diane Langberg is a great, I mean, reading any of her books is a great place to start. Um, I think that this, this was my thesis I was working on last semester. I think that we should start remembering that trauma is a disability of sorts mm. in the sense that um, it it impacts our bodies, it impacts our minds, it impacts our relationships, it impacts our spiritual life. And hopefully it is a temporary disability. And when people get proper trauma care, they can heal. So it's not a life sentence. But in the same way that we consider physical disabilities and the accessibility of our churches, you know, we want to put in wheelchair ramps. We want to put in elevators. We want to have closed captioning for people who are hard of hearing. Yeah. The same way we think about physical disabilities, we should think about trauma accessibility and make sure that our churches are accessible to traumatized people. And that starts with church leaders being educated on trauma. So reading some of the secular science books on trauma, like Trauma and Recovery by Judith Herman is a great place mm-hmm. to start. Um, in an unspoken voice by Peter Levine, um, learning how trauma, what it is, how it impacts our bodies, how people can heal from it, will keep us from making the boneheaded mistakes that harm people that we make without a proper yeah. knowledge. Because people who are traumatized will have outsized emotional reactions. They will struggle to trust they um, will often have body symptoms that are hard for them to understand. And all of that impacts their relationship with God, especially if they were traumatized in a spiritual context. If someone who spoke in God's name traumatized them, their relationship with God will be damaged. Mm. And I believe that the people who do that harm will be severely judged. Um, those are the people who need to have the millstones around their necks and be thrown into the sea because they are causing God's little ones to stumble. Mm-hmm. But when you are a shepherd who understands trauma, you will understand why someone is triggered and why someone is melting down and why someone is having a hard time trusting you and why someone might not even want to walk into a church building because they know it will overwhelm their nervous system. 
And when you understand that, you can provide trauma-informed, trauma-accessible spiritual care that meets people where they're at and points them to proper healing resources. Um, mm. There's so much more I could say about that, but just just Can we find to- your thesis anywhere. Is your thesis available? Um, so it's just it was a, it was like a 20 page research paper. I would be happy okay. to send it to you, but I haven't published it. I might submit it to a journal in the future. As we wrap up, I would love to hear you tell us what is the difference between actual discipleship and somebody that is just super involved and supporting your church. Over it's easier to measure. I think it's really yes. easy to measure the how many times did they show up? Right. Were they baptized? Are they giving? Are they in a small group? Um, what's the difference? Well, over involvement in church can actually be a trauma response or like a coping skill, right? Like mm-hmm. you could be doing that out of people pleasing. You could be doing it out of a fawn response. Yeah. Um, you could be doing it because if you keep busy. You don't have to sit with the discomfort of your emotions that you're not used to handling. So I actually would get worried if someone is too involved in that sense. If I see that like they're running so fast, I think they're running away from stuff they need to deal mm. with. As a pastor, yeah. that would concern me. One thing I value about my current church is that they are very focused on rest and are very affirming of like, are you sure it's the right time for you to be serving right now? It's okay mm-hmm. if you just need to come to church and not serve. I, yeah. It's beautiful. I love that. It's very un-American. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. So judging someone's spirituality by their extrovertedness is also a problem. There are wonderful followers of Jesus who are introverted and quiet, and that's also okay. So mm-hmm. I think discipleship needs to be individualized. Um, someone's healthiest life with Jesus is not going to look like someone else's healthiest life with Jesus. And so to be a disciple maker is to get to know a person individually and know what faithfulness looks like for them and then encouraging them and equipping them to walk in that faithfulness. I like that. That's beautiful. Well, I appreciate you just so quickly saying, let's do this. And I'm just grateful. I am so grateful um, for your love for Jesus and how you just want others to see him too. And, and for healthy, healthy churches. Thank you. Uh, May that increase, right? Absolutely. This was a gift to me because like you said at the beginning, I look at the ugly of the church so often as an Mm -hmm. anti-abuse advocate, as a care provider, um, as someone who has been researching spiritual abuse for the past decade and a half, I see the ugly so often. So it's a gift for me to get to say, these are the things I love about the church. This is what I love about following Jesus. Like to see the beauty of the church is restorative to me. So thank you for that. And also it's been a while since I've gotten to talk about discipleship. Most of the research I'm doing now is on emotions specifically. And so getting to to step back and remember how much I love the broader picture of discipleship yeah. is, is a gift Well, too. Scott Substack reminded me that you were passionate about discipleship. I'm like, let's talk about it. So I am. And if to- I can show my the book I wrote with Scott, Following King Jesus, it's oh, a wow. 24-week discipleship curriculum in which I tried to make it not American <laughs> yeah, yeah. and tried to, 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 you know, be aware of, of ableism and be aware of recommending diverse sources. Um, so if you're, if you're interested in 
uh, pulling from Scott's teaching in an actual discipleship workbook. That was a really fun project uh, that I recommend. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Becky. I hope you can take something from this conversation that can spark some continued conversation in your own life. Now, you may have noticed that there have been a couple reruns shared here recently. I took some time off to deal with the unexpected loss of my brother, Brian. I want to thank you so much for your support and understanding over the past month. Brian was my only sibling, and he lost his life to acute pancreatitis on March 3rd. So many of you have sent encouraging notes and have prayed for our family, and I am so grateful. It was great to have some time off with family, and now it feels good to be able to sit down and work on the podcast and resume some normalcy. I keep being reminded that life is always full of life and death and mourning and celebration all happening at the same time. Speaking of celebration, the second anniversary of the Untangled Faith podcast is right around the corner, and I want to include you in a special anniversary episode. If you have a question you would like for me to answer on the show, go to untangledfaithpodcast.com slash anniversary and fill in the submit a question form, and that question will make its way to me. I'll do my best to answer as many questions as I can. Thanks so much, guys. If you enjoyed today's show, you can find the show notes in the app where you play this podcast or by going to untangledfaithpodcast.com and clicking on episodes. If you're on social media, I'd love to keep this conversation going over on Twitter or Instagram or through the Facebook page. I'm Untangled Faith on Instagram and Facebook, and I'm Faith Untangled on Twitter. Today's episode is also a great one to discuss with your friends, so forward this episode to your sister or your friend group and tell them they need to listen because you want to talk about it. The Untangled Faith podcast is hosted and edited by me, Amy Fritz. This podcast is made possible by the support of my Patreon community. A special thanks to producers Michelle Pianic, Phil and Susan Perdue, Pam Forsythe, and Shelley Taylor. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week.